Thank you, Terry. May God add his, re- his blessing to the reading of the scripture this morning, and may the words from my mouth be what we each need to hear today. How many of you, by a show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself to be competitive? Who's competitive? Okay, let me rephrase that and say, how many have found yourselves to be competitive at some time in your life? Okay, I thought so. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have a competitive streak in us and in some area, whether it's having the nicest yard in the neighborhood or whether it's making good grades at school or whether it's making the best chili or whether it's having the best behaved dog, one that I would certainly lose at. We all want to be the best at something. We all want to be number one. Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple Corporation, was a super competitive guy. In the early days of Apple, employees knew everybody that worked for the company when it was small, all knew one another by name. And because working together is an important part always has been of Apple's and any company's success. The leaders wanted to be sure that the employees wouldn't lose that personal touch and that togetherness as the company grew. So someone suggested that they all wear, as they, as they get, got bigger and there were more and more employees, someone suggested that they all wear name tags. And this was before everybody wore badges at work. If there were two employees with the same name, then their tag would have their name and then it would have a number according to when they were hired. So if there were two Julies, for example, the Julie who was hired first would be Julie one, and then the one who was hired second would be Julie two, and so on. Well, there was a problem here. The founders of Apple were both Steves. There was Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And so they had a little bit of a problem. They both wanted that number one tag. And Steve Wozniak actually was officially recognized as the first employee. And so after some arguing back and forth, they agreed that he should get number one. So he got the tag that said Steve one. Then Steve two didn't want to be Steve two, because two comes after one. And so he decided that zero, since it comes before one, he would like to use on his badge. He'd like it to stay Steve zero. And since Steve Wozniak was tired of arguing with him, and nobody else in the company wanted to argue with him because he was one of the bosses, he became Steve zero. So I guess you could say Steve Jobs was a very competitive guy. There was a lady named Kathy who tells about the day that she gave birth to her first child. Well, on the same day that she gave birth to her first child, a colleague, a co-worker of hers, also was at the hospital having a baby that same day. And she and her husband had prepared for this day with you know, natural childbirth classes like most people do. And she was determined that they were going to follow all the rules and the protocol and that they were going to deliver the baby 
and she had decided in advance that she was going to do it without any pain medication. Well, her co-worker, on the other hand, requested pain medicine not long after she got to the hospital. Well, as Kathy was uh, being wheeled out of the delivery room after the baby was born, as she passed the nurse's station, she noticed there white, a whiteboard. And up on the whiteboard were written her name and her colleague's name listed. Well, next to her name was a B plus. And then next to her co-worker's name, she saw an A minus. Well, she was ticked. She said to her husband, I did this without pain medication, and I got an A minus. And she had that baby delivered naturally, and she took pain medication, and I didn't, and I only got a B plus. Her husband rolled his eyes and he said, Kathy, that's your blood type. Competitive. We all want to be competitive. We all want to be number one, front of the pack. It's human nature. But Jesus did not have that problem. In our Bible reading this morning, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Caesarea Philippi. It's a mostly Gentile area, so very few Jews there. And in his day, this area was known for its shrine. There was a shrine there in honor of a Greek god who was called Pan. And then there was also an important temple that was there that honored Caesar because the people in that day treated Caesar like a god. And there was also a cave in this area. And in this cave was an underground spring and water flowed out of this cave. The water was so deep that it was believed that it came from the underworld. And everywhere Jesus and his disciples looked, they saw worshiping of idols and worshiping of false gods. And maybe that's what motivated Jesus to ask his disciples this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say I am? Was he feeling competitive? No, I don't think he was feeling competitive. The King of Kings and the Lords of Lord, Lord of Lords isn't threatened by anything or anybody. This question, I think, was not for his good or his benefit, but I think it was for the good of the disciples and it was for the good of us when we read this and learn, relearn this story. The disciples said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, that you've come back. Others say that you're Elijah and that you come back. And other people think you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets and that you've come back from the dead. And then he asks them that question. But what about you? Who do you think that I am? If Jesus were here, standing here in this pulpit today, and he pointed at you and said, who do you say I am? How would you answer that question? What if you could see clearly, unmistakably, the truth about Jesus? What would you see? What would you say? Well, we don't know if 
the other disciples were paying attention or not, or if they were just holding their heads down and uh, didn't really uh, want to answer the question. But Peter, good old Peter, always the first one to speak up, says, Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Someone once wrote that this is the greatest difference between Christianity and other religions. In every other world religion, the word stays word. A set of rules or a set of beliefs or a set of rituals that have to be followed. Only in Jesus does the word become flesh, a real person. When we see the truth of Jesus, we see the heart and we see the mind of God. We see the fulfillment of the promises that God made in the Old Testament that he was coming. We see the way, the truth, and the life. Only in Jesus do we see God in the flesh. In January of 2003, Geraldine Wolfe, who was a bishop of the Episcopal Church in Rhode Island, decided that she was going to spend a month living in homeless shelters across the northeast part of the United States. She did it to better understand the needs in her part of the country. She didn't tell any of her friends. She didn't tell her church members. She didn't tell anybody what she was going to do. But she said that as she traveled to various soup kitchens and homeless shelters, she saw some of the people from her church. She saw some standing in line at the soup kitchens. She, she saw some in homeless shelters. In an interview, she said this, I saw a whole list of people. I just kept a list of the beginning of, at the beginning of people that I saw who didn't see me. I saw two people at the mall. I saw one of my priests walking around the streets, and I just sort of waved as I walked by. People didn't recognize me. I mean, if they did, they didn't say anything. And I haven't received a letter yet saying, we saw you. This was Bishop Wolf's way of trying to understand what people in her part of the world were going through and the difficulties that they were facing. Crowds of people followed Jesus throughout his three years of ministering. Plenty of people spoke with him. Plenty of people argued with him. Some were blessed by him. Some hung out with him. But did they see him? Did they recognize him for who he was? The Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God the Father sent. Remember before we've talked about that gap that was between us and God. And Jesus filled in that gap so that now we can be close to God. We can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Did they recognize that? Well, there's a risk in seeing the truth. And there's also a responsibility. It's easy for some to debate the truth. Some argue and say it's not true. Some run from the truth. They know it to be the truth, but yet they flee from it. That's why people were so quick to call Jesus a prophet, because if he was just a prophet and not God, 
then we can discuss, we can debate what he says, we can ignore his message if we want to. He's just a prophet. But if Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, then ignoring him is not an option. We can't ignore him. He is Lord. We need to obey him. His life is our example. His promises really become the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our faith. His commands, the things that he tells us to do, become our calling in life to do. We can't claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and not be changed by that fact. When we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we're challenged to step across a line, to make a decision, to die to ourselves, and to live our lives as his followers. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be some kind of a strange person. It just means we need to be willing to share that love wherever we go. There was an anonymous author who once wrote, There is no such thing as partial commitment. When the pilot of a giant airliner is speeding down the runway, there's a certain point where he or she cannot decide to remain on the ground. When he or she crosses that line, he is committed to the air, or the plane crashes disastrously. That pilot cannot change his mind when the plane is two-thirds of the way down the runway. Unfortunately, our churches are filled with people who have never left the ground. Those are hard words. What does it mean? What, is it, what does this author mean when they say members have never left the ground? Well, maybe there are a lot of people in our churches who have never answered this question that Jesus asks. Who do you say I am? It means we are missing the joy and the peace and the hope of knowing the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. And the second thing we learn from this discussion is that when we see the truth of Jesus, we also find our own identity, who we are and what our calling in life is. After Simon Peter's answer, Jesus blesses him. He calls him a rock. Peter's words confessing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, later become the words of the church. When we say that Jesus is the Messiah, you and I are joining with believers who are in heaven, believers who are on earth today, from every tribe, every nation, every language over the past 2,000 plus years. And by the power and authority that he gives us, we become part of this big, universal, triumphant church. And Jesus promises in that scripture that Terry read for us this morning, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Keep those words in your mind because today we see so many things happening and we hear words like post-Christianity 
where it's all going to go away and there aren't going to be churches anymore. Where it's all going to be individual religion and spirituality. Don't you believe it? Jesus said that his church will not be defeated. It will not go away. In 2020, the Times of Israel reported that one of the earliest Christian churches in Israel had been uncovered. Now listen to this. This was just three years ago. This, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, this archaeologist was excavating and they found a church. Listen to where it was. This church was in Caesarea Philippi, the very place we read, we've read about and we're talking about this morning. And it gets better. This church was built on top of a temple that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Hmm. That was the place where Jesus told Peter that he would build his church. According to the archaeologists who excavated this site, one of the first clues that this was a church was it was a Christian church, was that there were little crosses formed by mosaic tiles all across the floor of the building. Hmm, exactly where the scriptures tell us. Found 2,000 years later. Tell me again about how the story of Christ isn't real. Nonsense. Jesus is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So who do you say he is? In his book, Jesus is a Question, Reverend Martin Copenhaver writes about attending a conference. This was a, a conference of ministers. And one of the... Uh, speakers challenged the ministers with this question. He said, when was the last time you told your congregation what Jesus means to you? Or to phrase it in the words of Jesus, but what about you? Who do you say I am? When's the last time you said that? Told your congregation the answer, your answer to that question. Well, some of the ministers just dismissed the question, didn't think it was, thought it was too simplistic. But Reverend Copenhaver said he was moved by that question. He realized that he had talked about Jesus regularly to his congregation, but he never shared with them his, his opinion, his story, and what Jesus meant to him. He decided that when he left this church, this was going to be the topic of his last sermon. Let me share some of the closing thoughts that he gave the folks on his last day at this church. He said, as I am about to leave, there is something I want to tell you. I want to tell you what Jesus means to me. I want to share my belief that everything in my life depends on him. I want to urge you to learn from him. I want to assure you that you can lean on him in times of trouble. He's always there. I want to ask you to listen to his words of challenge. I want to tell you that I believe that you can entrust your life to him. I want to affirm that he is the Lord of this church. 
and that in his name you are free to always love one another. And you are empowered to share that love with the rest of the world, those who are hurting. I want to profess that though once people could not look at the face of God and live, they would die. Now we are invited to look at the face of God in him, in Jesus, and live as we have never lived before. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God with us all, whether we are together or apart. That's what it's all about. That's all I know. Amen. And afterwards, a parishioner came up to him with tears in her eyes, and she asked him one very simple question. She said, why didn't you tell us this a long time ago? Who is Jesus to you? Maybe it's time for us, each of us, to confront that question. Maybe it's time to discover the truth about God. The truth about the God who made you. Who made you and I to be what God made us to be and what purposes God has for our lives. And then it's time to tell others about him. So that the truth will continue to change lives and grow the church until the day we are made complete with him in his kingdom. Who do you say Jesus is? Amen.